I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, my dear Once Upon a Geners. I'm Effie Parks, your host around here. Our Discord group is popping. So if you're looking to connect with others in the community and make friends, connections, ask questions, get a pep talk, please download Discord and join our rare and relatable group. The link's in the show notes. Today's guest is coming at you all the way from Switzerland. If you're a regular around here, you heard her incredible storytelling episode on the New Beginnings episode, number 117. She has a stunning new blog over at averyrareadventure.com. She's mama to Casper, who has DeSanto Shinawi syndrome. Today, she's opening up about the postpartum depression with rare disease added on top that she's experienced. There is deep talk about mental health and suicidality, so please enter this conversation with care. Here's my beautiful friend, Katie Lloyd. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. You were on a beautiful storytelling episode a few weeks back. And I know we've been connected for a while, and I'm just really excited that that we're finally here together. Yes, I, it's such a great place to be, and I'm so excited to be here, you know. I'm surprised you want to hear what I have to say, to be honest. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I hear that a lot from parents, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that's all about exactly. I feel like everyone's just, you know putting their shoulder to the wheel all the time and working so hard for their families that they don't necessarily realize how much of an impact they're making and how much what they're saying and just being a caregiver in general and sometimes sharing about those hard moments ripples out and really helps to change things for other other families. I'm really excited about your new blog that you put out. Speaking of that, can you tell us a little bit about it? I started writing about not long after my son was diagnosed with his rare genetic syndrome. And it's something I've wanted to do for a while. And I just started writing and putting things together and in a file and thought, if it's awful, <laughs> at least it's there and it's written and we'll see what happens. And I have a friend who really gave me the shove that I needed. And she said, okay, I'm going to make the website for you. You just write and I'll put it all on for you. And we just launched it last week. And it's gotten really great feedback and it was, yeah, it's been really exciting. Yes, it's awesome. We'll attach a link in the show notes. It's a very rareadventure.com. So go check out Katie's blog when you're finished with this episode. Okay, well, Katie, tell me about your family. Tell me about little Casper. Okay, so we are a family of three. There's me, my husband, Patrick, and Casper. 
So Casper is almost three, which is hard to believe, but he's gigantic. So at the same time, <laughs> I can really see, yeah, he's a, he's a big kid. He is just a crazy whirlwind of a toddler. He just started walking a couple of months ago and he, if he's in a room, he will destroy it. Everything he touches goes on the floor. Everything gets broken. Yeah, what else? He's a, he loves tractors. We live in the countryside, so he gets to see a lot of tractors. He loves cows. It's his favorite animal. And he is just a really fun kid when he's not destroying our house. <laughs> he is so cute. And he is a little tank, actually. <laughs> I never really completely noticed it. But yeah, he is such a little handsome kid. And he was the first kid that I met with his specific syndrome. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes. So his syndrome is called DeSanto Shanawi syndrome, which is quite a mouthful. And I had to get the geneticist to write it down for us because I'd never heard of it before. It didn't mean anything to me. So there are 120 official cases, but I think unofficially there's probably about 200 children and adults, actually. It's not just children. So for Casper in particular, uh, the things that affect him the most are probably his hypotonia. So he has low muscle tone, most parts of the body, especially the mouth. Um, so he's nonverbal currently. He, and he drools a lot. So we have to wear a lot of bibs throughout the day. He has dysmorphic facial features. So he has a specific nose that all the, all the kids look the same. It's really funny. So I think he said that about Ford syndrome too. They look like cousins or that they're all from the same family. It was such a crazy moment seeing all their faces and thinking, wow, these kids look just like my son. Because we said for a while, you know, he doesn't really look like anyone in our family and he has a different nose and his eyes look a bit different. So it all made a lot of sense when we finally had the diagnosis. Yeah, so developmental delays is, is really common in kids with his syndrome. I think like a lot of syndromes, things like epilepsy, so Casper had infantile spasms when he was nine months old, but this is not very common with kids with his syndrome. In fact, I think there are only three with, with infantile spasms, which makes him very rare, which is why I called the blog a very rare adventure. Yeah, let's talk about the infantile spasms and how they showed up. He was nine months old and we knew for a while things were not quite right, but when infantile spasms hit, it was a totally different Ball game. We had we had no idea what we had no idea what we were looking at, to be honest. And I remember sending an email to his pediatrician, and we've been in touch quite a lot for various reasons. And I couldn't film it because it was so short. So I described it, and he said, "Oh, that sounds like normal baby movements to me." And they didn't go away. So he was doing. I thought he was losing his balance. He would open and extend his arms and legs as if he were falling forwards. And he had an ear infection at the time. So I thought, well, maybe he's just losing his balance. But after two weeks, he was still doing it. And I thought something is not right, you know, and, and people, for example, my father-in-law saw it and he said that that just doesn't look right. So we filmed it and we sent it to the pediatrician and then it was just the ball got going straight away. And we actually emailed him on a Saturday and he replied the same day and said, okay, I have an appointment with neurology at the local hospital. You're going on Monday. And that's when, you know, this, this feeling of, okay, this is really, this is not normal. And what we thought for two weeks was not right is actually something very serious. And 
that's how it all got started, really. Ford had those, and I didn't know what I was looking at either, and I didn't necessarily know how to convey that to his doctors because I was working so hard to get other things happen that it really slipped through the cracks. And I look back at some videos and photos of that time, and it really breaks my heart that Ford was going through that, and I didn't have the language or the advocacy skills to figure out what it was, so... I love that your pediatrician emailed you back so quickly and helped get that ball rolling. What was ultimately what happened? What what kind of treatment did you start giving him or where did that go? We went to the hospital on the Monday and he had an EEG, just a 20 minute one. And they already could see from the EEG that he had very chaotic brainwaves. And quite typically with infantile spasms, they're looking for something called hypsarrhythmia, which is a certain brainwave or brainwave pattern, I guess. And they didn't see that, which I thought was quite surprising because it's very typically linked. But they obviously saw something that told them this is infantile spasms. So they started him on a medication called Vigabatrin, which is also known as Sabril. And this was three days after the lockdown in March 2020. So I think because of COVID, they avoided giving him steroids, which is another really common treatment for infantile spasms. So he just had the anti-seizure medication and we had to give it immediately. And that was pretty scary because from not knowing what we were looking at to finding out it was, we were looking at seizures to going on medication. It was all happened really fast. Yeah. Is he still on any medications for his seizures? How do you, how do you continue to monitor it now that he's three? We were extremely lucky that the seizures stopped after six days. We... Saw some absence seizures near the end, but we haven't seen anything since. We've had a lot of scares because Casper has a lot of sensory needs, but no seizures since. So we weaned off. He was on the on the medication for a total of 10 months. I know that doctors don't like to keep children on this medication because it can cause some peripheral vision loss if it's used for a long time. So he was on it for 10 months in total. He's not currently on any medication, but it doesn't mean we don't watch him like hawks. You know, if, if he does... Anything that's a bit unusual, we're whipping out the phone, trying to record it. Is that something? We've had a few EEGs just to make sure everything's yeah, everything's okay and everything's normal in the brain. But so far, so good. Mm, good boy. I know about that beginning. I feel like you're dead center in so many things that parents who are even just two or three years ahead of you can relate to so deeply. And I know you've dealt with postnatal depression and, you know, going through a lockdown too in the first couple years of Casper's life and getting a rare disease diagnosis and going through all this stuff. I kind of want to dig into that if you're okay with it. Yes. I know it's a subject that isn't really touched that much because it's it's hard to talk about and it's hard to open up about and it's really it's just hard. And I think especially for parents of kiddos with rare diseases, it's just an extra, extra layer and an extra burden. And uh, yeah, I just kind of want to talk about what it's been like for you and how it's how the symptoms started to show up. I actually started with symptoms probably quite early on, way before the infantile spasms diagnosis, because Casper was a baby who just wouldn't sleep. And every time I told a doctor that, they would say, but babies don't sleep. And I would say, no. He would wake up screaming after a 10-minute nap. He was in a lot of pain as a baby. And that's now I know that's due to his syndrome. But he was 
constipated, he was bloated, feeding was difficult, he would catnap all day, he would only sleep on me, breastfeeding got difficult after three months, and I was just exhausted. And here, fathers only get two weeks. I know at the time it was one week paternity leave, and compared to a lot of surrounding countries, I know in the US it's different, but one week is just nothing. So, and we live abroad from both our families, so... I found it really hard being home all day with a baby who just just screamed. He would scream for three hours sometimes. And he was just a very unhappy baby. And that was really hard. And I think as a mum, when you can't solve the problem and everybody says, well, just try this, just do that. Put him in the sling, take him for a walk. And I would push this screaming baby around a park and think, what am I doing wrong? And you, you tried to take on board all this advice. So he had severe colic, he had reflux, he had constipation, he had feeding trouble, and it just grinds you down after months and months. And I think there was always this underlying feeling of, there's something not right, there's something not right, but I don't know what it is. And nobody agreed with us. I felt like me and my husband, we both, even though we're first time parents and had very little experience with babies, we just had this feeling that something wasn't typical. With our experience, you know, our friends were taking their babies out to restaurants or going on holiday. And I felt like I couldn't even shower or leave the house because I couldn't put him down without him screaming. And it was a really horrible feeling. And I think a lot of parents listening know this feeling of something is not right, but I don't know what it is. And nobody believes me and nobody's taking me seriously. And that's why I had the pediatrician's email address, because so often I would say, is this normal? Is this right? <laughs> and he knew me pretty well by that point. So I would say the first symptoms was I just felt so sad all the time and I just cried all the time and I felt really miserable. And I think it was our health visitor who said, I, I think you need to go see someone. So when he was eight months old, I started to see a therapist, which didn't help. He wasn't great, unfortunately. And I had to fire him. <laughs> Because he said some terrible things. I remember Casper was diagnosed with infantile spasms and he said, oh, I don't think that type of epilepsy is very bad. And in the next session, he came back and said, no, I was really wrong. Actually, it's a catastrophic form of epilepsy. And he was right, but just, I felt like it was very unprofessional and and I, I fired him actually. <laughs> mm, yes, yes, Katie. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, there's so much there, right? I actually feel like I've said everything you said a hundred times on the podcast. And so many can relate to that. I mean, our kids not sleeping, our kids just crying and crying and writhing in pain that we don't understand. And also the lack of sleep and being post, you know, just having a baby, you know, like that postnatal hormone level and not having family around. Oh my gosh. And not having that that physical support around you. And then everyone diminishing your worry, right? Like, I don't think I'll ever forget what that felt like after it just being hammered on me more and more, right? Of people just washing away your concerns and telling you that they'll catch up and telling you that every kid has its own timeline and telling you that you're just tired and you're worried. I mean, that stuff alone can separate you from so many people and from yourself so quickly. 
Yes. And even just comparing experiences with, with my friends, you know, I would say, does your child cry for three hours at night? And they'd say, no, if she cries for more than 20 minutes. That's a bad day. And I, you know, you think, okay, so what am I doing wrong? And I had this, like a bit of a broken record in my head, like, oh, I'm not made for this. I must be doing something wrong. And I'm not made to be a mother. And it got so bad. And I, I write about this on my blog and that I became suicidal at one point. I thought, I am not meant to do this because everybody else got a manual on how to be a mother and I didn't. But I think because our kids don't fit the typical steps, they don't develop in the typical way. So we don't actually have the manual because they have rare diseases that even scientists don't have a manual for. I wish I'd known that at the time. That's the hard part looking back now. You know, I can be very compassionate now because I know so much, but at the time I, I just, I, I blamed myself for everything. Man, I'm so sorry that you went through that. That's just like the darkest kind of pain. And what did you do to seek comfort? Like what were some of the things that you did to help not just recognize that the suicidal thoughts were extremely important to pay attention to, but where did you go? What did you do? What resources did you find? What were you searching for? Or did someone just finally wrap their arms around you and give you a little bit of a guide? I found a lot of services and resources nearby. So we had a service that came over and they were fantastic. So they either took care of your child or they cleaned your house. So they would turn up on the day and say, what do you need? And I could either hand Casper over and say, I need to sleep. Or can you please do my ironing? And they were just, they were like angels. They were amazing. What else? I got a sleep trainer. She cost so much money, but she was the best thing I ever did because Casper went, he would wake up five times on a good night. And when I told the sleep trainer that, she said, that's just not good enough. And within two days, he was sleeping through the night for the first time in nine months. And everything went to hell when the spasms began and the, the medication began, but we had them in this good routine. So I highly recommend getting one. And even after, you know, we, we got her back a few months later when we started working again on his sleep because the anti-seizure medication just messed up his sleep so much. He became an insomniac. And even though I said, you know, he has epilepsy and he's on medication, she said, no problem. I can work with him. And that was really one of the best things we ever did. Oh, that sounds like a dream come true. That's not good enough. I need everyone to say that. <laughs> she was, again, like a, like an angel that just came into <laughs> our lives. So, you know, if, I think if you don't have local support, like, in, I mean, in family support, I think looking around what are the services, what's around you, what what can you afford or what's free? When you were in that moment where it was really, really dark for you, did you feel like you couldn't ask for help or were you used to like being independent and taking care of things by yourself? Were you ashamed to reach out? So ashamed because I thought if I say something, they'll take away my son. And I remember the health visitor even said, okay, you don't have many options. You can go to the hospital and say, I'm having an emergency and they'll admit you. And I just thought, that can't be the only solution. That can't be a way to, to help me. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go to the hospital and say, this is an emergency. So I just kind of powered through, which I don't really think is the way to, to do things. But my husband was the one who said, you need to get help. And he did that on two occasions because 
had a, another moment of, I don't know if it's still postnatal depression after which point, but definitely it was depression again later. So I'd say maybe around when he was a year old. And again, he said, okay, we need to find you a new therapist. So it didn't really come from me. In fact, it came from my husband who said, we need to do something. I think he even said something needs to change. All makes sense. Yeah. And having just kind of one answer to it doesn't really work. I'm sure being admitted into the hospital would be the answer for some. But yeah, that shouldn't have just been your only option. And I think it's really cool that you recognized that about yourself and thought that, no, that's not what I need for my family exactly. And you kept looking. That takes a lot of guts. I'm very stubborn. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have things that activate you now that send you into this heightened sense of like, oh my gosh, maybe I'm starting to fall into a depression or is this anxiety or do you have things, I hate the word trigger, but I have to use it because that's the only word people use. Do you have things that trigger you that make you kind of snap back and figure out ways that you need to manage your own mental health and your well-being? Since getting my son's diagnosis, it was only five months ago, But since that moment, I don't think I've had any moments, to be honest with you. Because before the problem was, I was always comparing him. And I would say, okay, well, this child had infantile spasms, but now they're caught up developmentally. So what am I doing wrong? Why is my child not catching up? So I would see, you know, I'd look on these uh, support groups and I'd see a child who was caught up and say, And then I would really beat myself up and I'd go back into the cycle of, okay, you're doing something wrong. You have to do more physio. You have to do more speech. You're not doing enough of this. And I would put it all on myself. But now that he has this syndrome and I have this this name and I can see, okay, all the children do this or most of the children are like this. I can only compare him to himself or maybe with the other children in the group. But even then, I know it's a syndrome. So they're all different. So I've stopped comparing him to every child who had infantile spasms because there are hundreds of causes. So of course, every child is completely different. And I I don't do that anymore. And that's a really healthy cycle. I've I've broken this really unhealthy cycle now. Mm. What do you think the things are that helped you come to this sense of acceptance? That's a good question. I think it, it really comes back to getting the diagnosis because I think without one, I felt so lost. And having one, we accepted it really fast, me and my husband. It was, okay, he has that. We read all about it. Yep, yep, yep. Ticks every box. And it was just like we could breathe finally after just such a long time of having no answers. And I feel really silly saying that because I know people wait 20, 30, 40 years to get a diagnosis, you know? And for us, it was only two years or a little bit longer, but definitely that helped massively to accept because... I think as well, I blamed myself. So I would think, try to think of how I could have caused his disability. So I would say, well, maybe it's because I swam too much when I was pregnant, which sounds ridiculous, but I was really in this, it must be me. I must be doing something wrong. Or I must have done something wrong. And my husband, you know, he thought this is totally irrational and it is, but because I didn't have answers, I was trying to come up with my own and I put it all on myself. And, you know, the geneticists, he, he explained to us how a mutation occurs. It's in during conception or directly after. So everything that came after did not cause a syndrome. So I couldn't 
blame myself anymore. And that was so freeing. Yes. <laughs> I think that going down that rabbit hole, right, and the swirls of questions and blame and guilt and just heart-wrenching fear that you did something or that you caused it is it's it's such a cycle. It's such a vicious cycle. And I feel like even before you could get a diagnosis, the explanation from a professional about how genetics actually work and how the diagnosis works, even if they don't have a label yet, would be really comforting as a parent who's searching to know that, like, if this is genetic, you didn't do it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and I know people carry that around, especially literal carriers, right? People who feel like they were responsible because they carried a gene and they didn't know about it when, in the same sense, it's nobody's fault. Right. And even the geneticist, he explained, you know, it could be that your egg carried the mutation and you think you could go down the rabbit hole again and say, okay, well, what did I do to my eggs? But <laughs> it has to stop somewhere, I think. Yeah. Was it helpful for you to connect with other moms who were experiencing depression? I don't know if I did actually connect with any of the mums because while I was depressed, I didn't tell anyone. So nobody, nobody knew except probably my husband. But it was only later when I started telling friends around me that I'd been depressed that they started to say, oh, I have suffered from depression too. And it's because I was able to tell them, they were able to tell me. But it's almost like a secret club. If you don't talk about it, other people don't talk about it. And it's only now that I have friends who have children with disabilities from various places that I realize many of them experienced depression at some point and quite severe depression. But at the time, I never didn't know anybody else who felt the way I felt. Isn't it just a crazy maker, the things that we don't talk about? And then once they have a sliver of light brought to it, everyone can understand in their own way. Right. And it's really interesting with the blog because I talk about postnatal depression and a friend of mine wrote to me after reading it and said, I had no idea it was so bad and I'm so sorry. But I said, how could you know? I never told anyone. And I tried to hide it. So it's impossible to know unless you follow me around 24 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> when you were going through it, when you were in the depths of despair at that time, do you feel like you even had the capacity to let others know or were you just surviving? Do you wish that you could have talked about it or done something at, about it at that time? Or do you feel like what you were doing was keeping you alive? I think it's really hard to articulate how you're feeling because I remember my husband asking me, what are you depressed about? I said, I'm not depressed about anything in particular. Now there are some factors I know, like loneliness and feeling like nobody was listening, but I couldn't say I'm depressed because at that moment. So it's really hard to articulate. I tried to describe it to him. I said, it's like sitting at the bottom of a well and everybody else is at the top and you're at the bottom. And I don't think unless you've experienced it, you can really understand. So I tried, but I think even to friends, because they were all doing what I, th I thought they were all doing really well with, with parenting. So you don't want to look like you're failing. You feel like you're failing. But if you admit it, maybe people will say, hmm, she's not a good mom. She doesn't know what she's doing. So I think there's a lot of shame. So you hide it. I think there's a lot of fear of being judged. Do you feel like now you have like this new 
weapon in a sense that you've owned these hard things and you've recognized these emotions and these feelings for exactly what they are and perhaps they can fuel you now? Definitely. I feel, especially talking about it, it's like a fire has been lit in me because there must be people out there who who currently feel how I felt. And so being able to talk about it is it's just so freeing because you stop feeling ashamed because somebody else says, oh, I was depressed too, or I felt like that too. And it's amazing. You stop feeling like you're alone, that you were the only person in the world who felt like that, even if that's how you felt at the time. It really helps you to just finally come up for air and figure out a way to take action from that. Yes, definitely. And also with infantile spasms, you know, it was such a traumatic time in our lives and even thinking about it is really unpleasant but now I just want to help other families so I help volunteer for a Facebook group and we help newly diagnosed families and we help them to you know get their children diagnosed if we see a video that looks suspicious for infantile spasms we tell them what to do we point them in the direction of the right resources we help them feel supported and it's, it's so nice to use such an awful thing that happened to us and to our family and, and in a positive way now. Mm, yes, I can 100% relate to that for sure. I'd love to connect the link to that Facebook group in the show notes for anyone who might feel like they're experiencing this in their home, if that's cool. Yes, of course. What do you have to say to that person who feels like they might be feeling symptoms of depression and severe anxiety or don't have a support system in front of them to come over or just feel really scared and ashamed to speak out. Don't do what I did. Don't hide it unless you feel, or maybe don't hide it from everybody. Try to find somebody you can confide in. Maybe it's a friend or maybe there's a Facebook group. I didn't look for any at the time, but I'm sure there must be a Facebook support support group for people, for mothers suffering from postnatal depression or for depression. Talk to your GP. It's anonymous. You know, they're not, they can't tell anyone. They can point you in the right direction of, of services. I think the most important thing is to not suffer in silence because it just got worse for me. The longer I didn't talk about it, the worse it got. And, you know, things can't improve if, if nobody knows. You know, I was thinking when you mentioned earlier how afraid you were that someone was going to like take away Casper, right? Because of the thoughts and feelings that you were having and your just exhaustion overall. And Daniel DeFabio called me the other day about that exact thing, about how it is so scary as caregivers to really, really dig in and talk about the darkness of our lives because we are afraid of that. And it is a very real fear. And Knowing our lifestyle is not very understood in that part of the world with child protective services and stuff like that. And it's a very real fear and definitely a topic I think we should touch on more throughout our conversations because that's another reason people feel too afraid and it just shouldn't be so. And I think it's worse because people say things like, you're so strong. And I think, but I'm not. I'm screaming at the top of my lungs for for help you know and I, well I'm not but internally I am and people will you know all these very lovely things and I'm sure they mean well but 
I think that means you feel like you have to live up to this expectation of being really strong all the time. And I don't think people feel they're allowed to not be strong. If you show any weakness, people won't understand that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, we talk about this a lot in our world. You know, the toxic positivity, you did a post on that recently, where you're constantly fed these kind of cliche lines, really. You know, nobody's really digging in to the meat of what you're going through or what you're feeling. And it's all supermarket talk, right? It's all light and fluffy, a little pat pat. And nobody really wants to take the time to open up and be and actually see you because it's hard. It takes practice. It takes a certain type of personality. It is being a human being at that level that's vulnerable. And it's so important to do, especially for someone going through depression, for caregivers. And it can change the course of someone's life if you just see them. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Well, Katie, I'm really excited about your blog. I think you're opening up a lot of really good topics and it's going to resonate with so many people. And it is just good work being put out into the universe. And I'm really proud of you for doing it. And I'm really thankful. Any new resource in our world is so valuable and it's a golden nugget. And while I'm not happy you're here, I'm so happy you're here. Thank you. I just want to do something like you do, to show people you are not alone and everything you're feeling is normal and there are other people out there who feel like you too. Yes, yes. Well, watch your email. I'm sure you're going to get bombarded after this and keep me posted. Thank you. I will do. All right, Katie, tell everybody where they can find you again and how they can contact you. Okay, so my Instagram handle is a very rare adventure and the website is the same. So www.averyrareadventure.com. And I think they're probably the best places to find me. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Katie. I'll catch you on the Discord. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people. And please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.